picked up somewhere. I thought I'd pass along to you. It was uh, the shortest inaugural address ever given by a U.S. president. I think she said it was William Harrison. I'm not sure. Uh, I wasn't paying attention to the name, but his uh, inaugural address was an hour and 45 minutes long, and it was in a snowstorm outside. <laughs> you got to hear the rest of the story. He died a month later from pneumonia. <laughs> I don't know whether it was a result of that speech or, and then he got sick and stayed sick and got worse. Right. I'm sure that some of the guys have said. I think the subliminal message from Marla was that I didn't need to speak an hour and 45 minutes. <coughs> I, I, I pick up on some of those things. Anyway, I was going, o- going over my mind what would be, and in prayer, what would be a good area to cover uh, in the next few sermons, I guess. And... Uh, I realize we're coming up not very far away as Passover, and all that goes with the Passover, and uh, of course, uh, focusing on our Savior, Christ Emmanuel, who did die for us and died for ultimately the whole world in the plan of salvation, and uh, to get into some things specifically about Him, I thought would be a good thing to help us focus as we come upon the Passover season. So I decided to go to the book of John. Uh, John was a man recognized for having a great deal of love and compassion, a man of great sympathy, and you see that in his uh, in first, second, and third John that he wrote toward the very end of his life that he spoke so much about love. And even the Scripture itself, and John himself attests, he didn't put his name in there, but he says, the disciple whom Christ loved. Uh, and indeed, we found a place where he was leaning on Christ's breast or his chest uh, as they talked. They did have a different type of culture and relationship than we have in our American culture today. There are still cultures around the different places of the world where men kiss each other on the cheek and and uh, show outward affection that way that Americans would be essentially horrified at. Uh, just a different culture. So there was nothing funny about the situation. It's just that John was a man who had a great deal of love. And to read his gospel at this point... I think is a very good place to be because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and we'll read that here in chapter 3. So love is the greatest thing, what Paul said there in 1 Corinthians uh, 12. So there's no greater and better topic and better material, I guess, to speak of than he who was known for having a great deal of that gift. And that was the Apostle John. Uh, So, let's go into this book. 
realizing that it was written for us. We'll see that in a little bit here, I think. Uh, it was written for those who are alive today whom God is calling. Now, John goes way back to Genesis. In a beginning was the Word, or the spokesman, the Logos. Uh, Christ has done the speaking for the Father and has done all the creating, as Colossians shows us, and, and even here the third verse of John shows that. But he was the active individual doing the actual work of the Father, at the Father's behest and in perfect tandemness, of course, but he was the one who did the actual work itself. But it says in the beginning, in Genesis, was the spokesman, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So let's understand that, as we see in other scriptures, there was a family. At that point, there were only two who were on the level of God. Now, there's been controversy within the end-time church and striving over words uh, about there only being one God, and they've made a big debate out of that. But it is very clear in Scripture that we're, there was the Father was, of course, in charge. But he who became the Son was with him, and not only was he with him, he was God. So there were two beings in the God family, and I believe that Herbert Armstrong had that correct all the way through, that God is a family. Only two in the family right now, uh, the Father and he who became the Son when he came to the earth as the Son of God. And now there are others who are candidates to be the Son of God. Some are, are already anointed to be there. Read Hebrews 11, and uh, they are already in, in terms of qualification, and are only awaiting us, as he says at the end of the book of of Hebrews 11, uh, to see who will join them there. So let's get into this a little bit, or quite a little bit, actually. (laughs) The same was in the beginning with God. So he wants to be sure we understand that we're not talking about some just human being who was born on the earth and was a good teacher and uh, then died and so on and uh, was just a, a good teacher in the way that some put Muhammad or, or various others that they looked to. Now this was someone special who was there before he ever came to this earth and is still alive yet today, as we shall see. So we're talking about the same one who did the creation and was the God of Israel in the Old Testament, the one who did the works throughout, the one who was Melchizedek. Uh, We won't go into all that, but that's shown in the book of Hebrews and in the Old Testament as well, book of Genesis. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So, what he taught, what he believed, what he lived, was light. He was 
the spiritual light. We have the sun in the sky. I can see it almost out the, the door here today. And that is a light that gives physical heat, warmth to us. And in that sense is a type of, not an object of worship, but a type of the Son of God who gives all kinds of light. He made that sun and hung it in the heavens, and he also is the light bringer himself. Satan brings darkness. Christ brings light. So in him was light. I find it interesting that some people, it's hard to find people, really, who believe in creation. Our society's been sold on evolution or Big Bang or some wild way that what we have here is here. And some people say, well, I don't believe in magic. I don't believe these things just just happen. Well, who is God? <laughs> cannot He do what He chooses to do? I cannot create anything. I can take things that are here on this earth and saw them or cut them and nail or screw them together and make something of a different nature or character in that sense. But I haven't created anything. I've manufactured something out of materials that were already there. Now, do people believe in a living God and a living Christ? Most do not. It's a figment of the imagination, it's a spook, it's a cloud, it's a, an imaginary thing from the past. But Romans 1 makes it very clear that we can understand God by the things that are made. How did man get on the earth? Did he crawl out of the sea? Well, where did the sea come from? You know, where, where did all these things that were here come from? They had to have come from somewhere. Why does it have to be such a mystery? Look at how fearfully and wonderfully we are made. How incredibly man, man is. One of the, or if not the masterpiece of God's creation. He made man and woman. And one cannot exist without the other. It's a symbiotic relationship. Without repopulation, the people would have died out when Adam and Eve died. But God made a way that human beings can be increased. For there is a living Creator God who made all things and made them out of that which had been created earlier. You, can, I, you, know, you know, I played in the dirt a lot when I was a kid. I made... Uh, houses and castles and mud pies and dinners and all kinds of things out of dirt and mud. And you know, none of them ever spoke to me. You, you can play in dirt all your life and you won't create anything that can stand up and breathe and talk. Now how can you believe that God made man out of red dirt, which we find in this area, which is the area where man was created, and not believe in miracles or so-called magic, that God was able to take dirt and make living beings out of it. 
and yet he did. How else? Now that may sound crazy to some people, but give me a better explanation. Show me something where all this stuff just sort of, there was a big explosion and all the pieces came down shaped like people that could breathe in an atmosphere on the earth. Now there's something crazy. <laughs> but an intelligent being who could create mankind and trees and birds and, and things for them to eat here on this earth, there had to be a mastermind. There had to be somebody smart, intelligent, and powerful who could turn death into life. And that's the one we're talking about here. John goes all the way back to the beginning to tell us there was someone back there with God the Father who did all these things. And that's where goodness and light come from. And verse 6, he says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Now, Christ had been born on this earth uh, at the behest of God, and he was man become, our God become man. For a little while made lower than the angels. Amen. Now, John the Baptist came to introduce him to prepare a way for him, to proclaim that he was on his way, that he was coming. John the Baptist was born six months before Christ was, and therefore being a little bit older, uh, he was at least that much older, and began preaching in the wilderness before Christ uh, began his ministry. And the whole purpose of John's ministry was to prepare a way and then baptize Christ and point to him as the one who was the Son of God. Just as God is going to send witnesses at the end of this age for the last three and a half years who will proclaim that Christ is coming and that he is the Son of God and that he will rule on the earth. And just as John the Baptist was killed right after Christ uh, appeared, uh, at least in a, in a formal position to teach and preach, uh, so will the end-time John the Baptist, the Elijah to come, also be killed three and a half years, three and a half days, excuse me, before Christ returns. Having cried in the wilderness of darkness, spiritual darkness, that the Son of Light, the Son of God, was coming. So he was sent from God. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. That witness was laid out there, but all men at that time did not believe. And we know from other scriptures that there is a plan of God whereby all men will have a very wonderful opportunity to believe, to comprehend before the purpose and the plan of God is all finished. So John was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. The only thing this world can produce, being ruled by Satan, is darkness. And unless 
we had the Word of God, unless we had this recording of it, and that God and Christ are still very much alive and can enact with our mind and our spirit and heart to come to understand and to see light, without it we would be in darkness like the rest of the world around us is. Without the Spirit of God, you cannot understand. We'll see that in John 6, in a little bit. Well, maybe not today. We probably won't get that far. But that's the case. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. So he came to live a life on this earth, to preach about a coming kingdom and his Father, who is the great power of all the universe. And even though he had created the earth, and John is telling us here, from verse 1 of his gospel, that Christ is the one that was there and did the creating in the Garden of Eden. So it was made by him, and yet the world knew him not. Adam and Eve rejected him right away. How long did that take? I don't know. It doesn't say whether it was he was created and then they had the Sabbath and it was Sunday morning that Satan showed up as Herbert Armstrong believed or some believe that they lived in the garden for years before Satan was turned loose on them. I don't know, frankly. It's speculation. Uh, I would assume that they were not there very long before Satan came. <laughs> he was eager and God let him at it, let him at them. So, just when, we do not know for sure. But he came to Adam and Eve, whom he had created with his own hands, and breathed into their bodies the breath of life. And they knew him not, rejected him right away. Now, did they know him? Yeah, they had walked in the garden with him. They'd been taught by him. But did they really know him? I guess not. Because Satan convinced them very, very quickly in one short session that he was not the one to follow. But as many as received him, to them gave he power, and the, the Greek there better is right or privilege. It even says it in my margin. As many as received him, to, gave, to them he gave right or privilege to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name. So if we believe him, we're given opportunity or privilege or right to become God, to become sons of God. To become the sons of God. Not angels. But many scriptures indicate that we're to become very God and that it is not blasphemy to be called God. In fact, considering potential in one place, Christ said, you are gods. That is your purpose. That's why you're here. You're to become God. There's some learning to do before you become God, which is what we're in the process of doing. Verse 13, which were, should say, begotten, which were begotten not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the begettle that occurs in our mind, our heart, our spirit, our soul, if you will, uh, comes from God. 
And he tells us in 6.44 of this same book that no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So mankind cannot find God. They can't learn who God is unless God opens their mind and it is through His Spirit. So we were begotten as human beings, weren't we? We know who our father and our mother were, at least most of us do, uh, as human beings. So we know that, but very, very few have been begotten of God, the Father. And if we have been educated and committed and repented and turned to God and been properly baptized through the laying on of hands, God gave His Holy Spirit the seed of begettal. And then we are in the process of growing, even as a child grows in the womb, the analogy is perfect until we are mature enough to be born into the kingdom of God when Christ returns. And the Word, the spokesman, was made flesh. So he says right here that he who had been spirit was made flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They saw him as a human being. John witnessed it, interacted with him. The disciples lived, traveled together, uh, slept in the same valleys, slept in the same homes, same inns or hotels perhaps. Christ did have a house. Uh, he did say at one point that he didn't have a place to lay his head, but he did travel around a great deal and was not always at home. But there are scriptures that say that he actually did have a house. I won't look it up right now, but it's there. So, he who had been God was made flesh. And as we go on through here, we'll understand that the only purpose for him doing that was so that we might be someday made God. God came to flesh, became flesh, so that flesh might become God as he now is God once again. And he was full of grace and truth. At that time, he was the only one begotten of God. First begotten, and then ultimately the firstborn of many brethren, as he reattained Godship. Now, verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spoke. He that comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So he came before Christ began his ministry, but he acknowledged that Christ was the one that had been there from the very beginning and preceded John. So though John preceded him as a human being, he had preceded John as a spirit being. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. So they've been given the fullness of the Spirit of God through Christ. And the opportunity for pardon, that's what grace is, unmerited pardon. Pardon that we do not deserve. The wages of sin is death. And we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, we all would die, not only humanly, which we are already subject to, but eternally if we did not get pardon. 
And, of course, we understand that Christ's sacrifice and his life as God, or having been God, was worth more than all of our lives combined. Therefore, he could be the sacrifice for all of us. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came by Emmanuel. Moses had codified, or God had codified through Moses, the law, written it on stone. Uh, but the law does what? If you break it, its penalty is death. And the only way to get out from under death is through the unmerited pardon, the grace, and the truth that came through Christ. Nobody really understood what it was all about until Christ came and made it clearer and offered salvation to you and to me as well as to those men back then. So he says, No man has seen God at any time, the, the Father. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So nobody's seen the Father, but they've seen the Son. Uh, not in His glory, uh, or they would have died. But they had seen Him as a human, fleshly being, and they had even seen Him in the Transfiguration uh, as coming in glory, but He was not actually there in glory, unless they die. So it was a vision, not something that actually happened. And this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So he was out in the wilderness preaching, and some people were coming and listening to John. Uh, he doesn't go into the detail of, of John as much as Luke does, or as uh, Matthew does, uh, in terms of him being eating locusts and wild honey and clothed in rough leather clothes and so on. Uh, but he goes straight to the, uh, to the story of Christ that John was speaking. So they did come to him and wondered, Who are you? What are you doing out here preaching all these things? Because they thought they sat in Moses' seat they thought they were the spiritual leaders of all Israel and Judah in particular there. So, who was this guy out here preaching about some man who was coming? Someone who would be the Son of God. Who, who are you out here talking in the desert? And he confessed and denied not. So, he told them, what he was doing, and why he was doing it. So he did confess that. But he didn't confess, or he could, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm preaching about Christ, but I'm not Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you that prophet, or that prophet Elijah? And he answered, no. Now, he may not have realized at that point what his office really was. I, I see that as a, a high probability factor. Uh, he had been commissioned uh, from childhood. Remember things that his father said about him there in, uh, in Luke, about how he would grow up and he would dwell in the desert until his being uh, made 
available to man or presented to mankind. So there was a type of Elijah that John the Baptist fulfilled. There's also an Elijah at the end to come that will do what Elijah did to the priests of Baal and who will do the same thing that uh, this John the Baptist did, prepare the way for Christ, being a voice in the wilderness, Isaiah 40 and so on. So uh, these things are fulfilled several times through history until the return of Christ. So he said, no, I'm not Elijah. Well, who are you? <laughs> well, I'm John, and I'm here preaching about Christ. So he didn't confess that he was Elijah. He confessed that he was there preaching Christ. Then said they to him, Who are you, that we may give an answer to them that said us? Why say you, or what say you, of yourself? So why did they come out there in the first place? I would think that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, would have written John off. They'd have said, oh, I, I heard some stories about some idiot out there in the desert uh, talking about a Savior to come. And, you know, he's crazy. He's been out in the sun too long. So let's not pay him any attention. But apparently some of the people that John had been talking to had come to the Pharisees and said, this is a guy out here preaching and, you know, he sounds pretty good. Uh, who is he? Why don't you go check him out? So it was at their behest, people probably who had heard John, that they even went out to ask him these questions. Now, knowing their attitudes as being self-righteous, I'm sure they went out there to prove to people that this was a nobody, that this was a crackpot out in the desert and didn't know what he was talking about. Okay? That's the way God's prophets generally are treated, or treated, I mean. So he says, what say you of yourself? Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3 there. Make straight the way of the eternal, as said the prophet Isaiah. Now, there are th those who think that there isn't an Elijah at the end, but if you read Isaiah 40 and on about the message that is given in the wilderness, uh, John did not complete it. He was the voice crying about Christ. But if you read on in the ensuing chapters there of, of uh, Isaiah, you'll find that there is that is an end-time uh, prophecy. It is an end-time fulfillment. So John the Baptist fulfilled part of it. He was a voice crying in the wilderness about Christ. But the final fulfillment of that is yet ahead, and the cataclysmic things that Isaiah writes about have not yet occurred. Uh, and they which were sent were of the Pharisees. So he told them he was crying in the wilderness, making a way for Christ. Now these men obviously would not have accepted John, because later on they did not accept Christ, of whom he was speaking. And they asked him and said to him, Why baptize you then, if you be not that Christ, nor Elijah, neither that prophet? Who do you think you are? Why are you baptizing, if you're not Christ or Elijah? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. 
But there stands one among you whom you know not. Christ was already there, but he had not yet appeared before them. He was only six months younger than John the Baptist. But John the Baptist started first to prepare the way for him. So he says, he's already here. He's among you. You just don't know who he is. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it, I am not worthy to loose. That I'm not even worthy to take his shoes off and wash his feet. Uh, I'm just some here, someone here to tell you about him. And isn't that what the ministry is all about today? And wasn't it in the days of the apostles and of the evangelists of the New Testament church? It's not to get aggrandizement or recognition for self. It's to preach Christ. It's to let people know that Christ is alive and that He is returning. And that we need to prepare the way. Let people know. Warn them. There is a witness to come, a specific formal witness for three and a half years. <coughs> so he said, I'm not Christ by any means. I'm just the one here to tell you about him. And he's already among you and you don't even know it. These things were done in Beth Abara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John sees Emmanuel coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Uh, John the Baptist was, in this sense, quite an individual. Christ said he was the most righteous man that had ever lived up to that point. Uh, but he had grown up as a cousin of Christ. The mothers knew each other, Mary and Elizabeth. Uh, that story is very clear there in Luke. So they had known each other, lived in the same general area, and grown up, and John had observed Christ as he grew up, knew him as a boy, and still had the highest and greatest respect for him. Now, what John the Baptist would become, and who Christ would become, was known to the families from the very beginning. Remember the story of Zacharias, who was made dumb until he uh, acknowledged who Christ was? And that the story had been told, and Mary and Elizabeth got together and compared pregnancies and compared uh, what they had been told and what had been revealed to them about these two children. So they both grew up knowing that they had a very significant role to play. Now John the Baptist could have seen Christ as a child and said, oh, he's just another boy. He's just human. He's like me. We're cousins. We rough and tumble and, and pin each other in the dirt or whatever they did as children, played, did things together, I'm sure, and knew each other very, very well. And yet... John the Baptist never forgot who Christ was. He always knew that he was to play an, a, a significant role. So he did not disrespect him because of familiarity. He recognized what he was and what he would do and who he would be. 
And he looked beyond Christ as a boy or as a young man and looked to the job that he had been given to do. And that's what we are to do, uh, as Paul and others said very clearly. With human beings on this earth who have been appointed to do certain and specific jobs and have throughout history from Adam on down. But this was someone who was truly, truly special as no one else ever was. So he saw him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. That, uh, that expression, the Lamb of God, is used 27 times in the book of Revelation, uh, which John also wrote. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. He's way ahead of me. I can't even take his shoes off and wash his feet. That's who I am. You see, John had the attitude that Christ told the Pharisees they ought to have. About, remember the story of the publican and the Pharisee. And the publican bent his head and said, I... I'm not worthy to even look up at God. When the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to look down and even take his shoes off and wash his feet. There's a... He didn't compete with Christ. He didn't say, hey, I'm just as good as he is. Uh, I'm from the same family. uh, Same relationship family, anyway. Not the same immediate family. But he came before me, even though I was born ahead of him. And I knew him not but that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come baptizing with water. But I didn't know him before, and even though I was born uh, six months before he was, I didn't really know him, but I know that he... So I'm coming baptizing with water. Water represents true doctrine, true belief, true understanding, and the water that John was disseminating was that Christ is the Word of God, that He is the Son of God, or was the Son of God at that time. So water is symbolic in baptism of a watery grave where the old man dies and is allowed to come back and live by the Spirit, but it also represents Christ's doctrine. And John bore record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said to me, Upon whom you shall see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So he said, I didn't know him really, except he sent me to baptize with water. And the same told him, uh, well, that wasn't Christ that told him that, either it was probably an angel, that had come and told him, when you see the Spirit of God descending like a dove on someone you baptize, you know that's the one. Well, John had grown up knowing the story of, of, about him living in the desert, about who Christ was, and yet God wanted it to be known in no uncertain terms who he was. So the angel had told John, you're going to baptize some people, but be it known that when you baptize the Messiah, you're going to see the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove out of heaven. Gently, uh, a dove 
is not an aggressive bird. It's a very kindly, gentle bird. It has a very gentle, appealing, comforting uh, call. Uh, even as Christ comes gently and lovingly, although he can come in fury and is about to. Different times, he has different ways. But he comes to us gently at first, doesn't he? He begins to teach us the truth. And he leads us into knowledge and understanding and toward baptism. And I saw, so he says, I saw it and bore record that this is the Son of God. So, it wasn't just Harris, it wasn't just a matter of John the Baptist telling people, you know, my mama told me when I was a boy that my cousin would be the Christ. And you've got to believe that. And people would have said, well, yeah, right. Yeah, your family is so important. Uh, no. God had a visual occurrence that John could see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Now, the Holy Spirit appeared in Acts 2 as a flame of fire. So God's Spirit can be manifested in various ways and can be in that sense seen, or at least a visible manifestation of it can be seen. So in this case, it descended gently like a dove and maybe even had the appearance of a dove. And in Acts 2, it came as a flame of fire with a great sound and, and uh, a magnificent dramatic display to show that there's God behind this. We're going to see more and more of that kind of thing happening in the future. I think we've experienced a little bit of it. There are a few of you who were there not very many. I see only three who were there. Uh, that time up at uh, Tanner Theater when I was reading just as the Passover service was about to begin about it, and it suddenly struck me that there was something wrong about the order of the Passover. And I couldn't deny it, so I asked the elder who was there at the time, he's not around now, uh, to, I asked the people to dismiss us here for a few minutes. We've got to go talk about something. And I felt very strongly that God had laid it on me that we were doing that Passover in the wrong order. They came just that quickly. During, I mean, as the Passover service was beginning, <laughs> no, no time ahead of time to, to truly search it out, but God just laid it on me that this, you know, we're doing this wrong. Just from a, one phrase I read. So I went back and says, we're going to go out there and we're going to change this. Do you agree? And he said, okay. He agreed that we'd do, well, we could do that. So we went back at, out, sat down, and I announced that uh, we were going to do the Passover, the foot washing and the wine, opposite of the way we had been doing it. And suddenly, there was an absolute, almost ear-splitting wind that hit. And that was a concrete building with thick concrete walls and a concrete lid on it. And it was almost like the whole building was trembling. It was such a powerful wind. 
and then it died out, quit. It just came all of a sudden in a rush and then died. You remember that, Al, Gene, Shirley? Well, to me, it was very dramatic that God was putting His stamp of approval on it right there. There's, uh, there's, there were a few still with us that, that were there. And we changed it right then that night. So, that to me was a demonstration. We haven't had many things like that. But we're going to see more and more of them as this thing gets closer. That God was there and that He had approved of what was happening. God is with us, brethren. He has been from the very beginning. He planted this tree. Jeremiah 11 says so. And uh, the fact it's had branches stripped off doesn't mean it's not the same tree. And God has said what He's going to do those to those who have been working at stripping the branches off of it. Anyway, let's not get into that. Let's uh, go on with this story. Uh, So the, the Spirit came down like a dove, verse 32, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said to me, <clears throat> Upon whom you shall see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So Christ is the one who had the Holy Spirit descend upon him in a visual manner. Was the Spirit of God with him from birth? Yes, it was. But this was for John's benefit and for the benefit of those whom John had been and would be speaking to, that he saw this thing actually happen, saw it occur. So he says, And I saw and bore record that this is the Son of God. It was a sign that the angel had told him would occur, and it did occur. When God says he's going to do signs and wonders, and he's going to make it known who he is, as Ezekiel for very prominently says, and they shall know that I am the Lord. He's going to do some very, very dramatic things here in the future and show that he is God. Just as something here was very dramatic and showed that Christ was the Son of God. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples... So, John did have some followers there who uh, believed what he said and were following him and going with him where he went. So, he stood and two of his disciples with him and looking, up, looking upon Emmanuel as he walked, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. So, he had said, Behold the Lamb of God in verse 29 and here he said it again. He's reiterating, he's emphasizing, that man right there is the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Emmanuel. So they'd been following John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was willing to say, I'm not the man. <laughs> There's the man. And they left John and followed Christ. Then Emmanuel turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you doing? What do you seek? Why are you following me? 
They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted, Master, where do you live? Uh, no, we were told, you're the Lamb of God. We're following you. Where do you live? That's where we're <laughs> We're following you. What are you looking for? Well, we're looking for where you live so we can be there, so we can follow you. He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he lived and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So he had them over for the, the evening, spent the rest of the day and, and the night, apparently. Uh, one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Aha! Uh -huh. Peter was to become prominent uh, in the early church of God, and his brother Andrew was one who was out following John the Baptist, and therefore had turned to follow Christ. He first finds his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. So he spent that day with Christ, and then he went and looked his brother up and said, Hey, we found the Messiah. Well, that's a lot like us saying to our friends and relatives, Hey, we found the truth. Remember how you did that? <laughs> Peter, at least, was uh, willing to listen, saying, Oh, you have, have you? And he brought him to Emmanuel, and when Emmanuel beheld him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. So Peter's rock, or Peter's name, would become a stone. In chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 18, he tells him that he's, he's the little rock uh, and Christ is the big rock. So he founded the church on himself, Christ, but he put Peter in charge of it as a stone not as big as, not as important as, the chief cornerstone, which was Christ himself. So right after, immediately after Christ had been baptized, John the Baptist told his disciples, there's the man to go to, and they introduced Peter, and Christ knew who he was. He, he, Peter may not have known him, but he knew Peter. He planned ahead. He knew what he was doing ahead of time. And God is always that way. God knew you before he called you too. The day following, Emmanuel would go forth into Galilee and find Philip and, and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, came from the same town. Philip finds Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus, or Emmanuel as we know him, of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Philip said to him, Come and see. You know, some places were not reputable. Some, Nazareth apparently was not a town that was recognized as a, a good place to be. Um, what, what equivalent could we say? Uh, people love to go to San Francisco. People love to go to the Big Apple, New York. They love to go to Miami. They love to go to certain places that are looked upon as places to be, places to go, important places. And then you mentioned Detroit. 
and it's hard to find volunteers. <laughs> you know, the place is falling apart. So it's, it, it used to have a good reputation as the auto building empire, but not anymore. It's, it's gone downhill. So Nazareth was one of those places like modern Detroit, I guess. <laughs> That's a place you just don't want to go. Can any good come out of Nazareth? Has a reputation for nothing but evil. That fits, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Christ said that he would call the weak in the base of the earth there in 1 Corinthians. And Christ did not, or was not born in that sense with a silver or a gold spoon in his mouth. He wasn't born in a court of nobility somewhere. His parents weren't kings and queens. Uh, they were from a little town that had a bad reputation. Uh, so Christ became, at the end of his life, a man of no reputation, despised of all, despised of everyone, even deserted by his own disciples. So he started out that way. Emmanuel saw Nathanael coming, verse 47, and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Uh, Nathanael didn't uh, put on airs. He didn't have any subterfuge or subtlety about him. Uh, he was pretty out front, I guess, because uh, he said immediately, he, he didn't play the politician here. He says, can any good come out of Nazareth? How could this man be any good? That's where he's from. So, there was no guile there. There was no subtlety. There was no uh, bootlicking or, or anything of that nature. He, he just up front said, I can't see how this guy could be worth anything. And he said, here's an Israelite in whom is no guile. Uh, this man's right straight out front. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Emmanuel answered and said to him, Before that Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He says, Yeah, I already know about you. I saw you sitting under a fig tree. And Nathanael, in a flash, remembered he'd been sitting under a fig tree. So he, he knew that he was being told the truth. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Just that quick, he went from saying, how could this man be any good, to saying, you're the King of Israel. Because Christ, he put together that Christ knew something of him before he even knew of Christ. And he says, this is remarkable. This cannot be coincidence. And he immediately went from, you can't be any good, to you are the king of Israel. That's a pretty quick turnaround, isn't it? Remember the uh, Philip and the eunuch? They were riding along, and uh, Philip began to tell him about Christ. Who, who's this you're talking about? What does this, this in Isaiah mean? So Philip started expounding Christ from the book of Isaiah, and the eunuch saw, his mind was opened right away. He saw the value. He saw who Christ was. And he says, here's some water. Baptize me. And Philip said, okay. 
You got it. You see it, man. Nathaniel was the same way. He saw it right now. I know you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. I don't know how smart Nathaniel was. Some of those Pharisees probably had high IQs. They might have been very, very smart. How long did it take them to recognize that that was the Christ, the King of Israel? Well, so far they haven't. <laughs> this is two 2,000 years later. There are a few Messianic Jews now, but for the most part, uh-uh. He's still not the Son of God or the King of Israel. Emmanuel answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, believe you, you shall see greater things than these. He says, if, if that little almost or seemingly coincidental thing, which you didn't believe was coincidence, you put it together pretty quickly. He said, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> this, this is just beginning. Well, I've you know, we've been introduced to Christ too, haven't we, brethren? For quite a few years now, we've known who Christ is and what His plan and His purpose is and what it's all going to be. And we've read all these prophecies through this entire book about things Christ would do here at the end time and later on after this age passes. And we ain't seen nothing yet. The dramatic stuff is still ahead. People say, oh, I don't believe in magic. These things can't happen. Well, do they even believe that God created man in the beginning? Well, if he was able to take dirt and make man and breathe into his mouth the breath of life, then I think he could do some of the things this book talks about, don't you? What does it take to believe? It takes God somehow opening your mind and that's all he did with Nathaniel. He gave him one little example of something he knew that Nathaniel had done that Nathaniel could say, I saw nobody. I didn't know that. How did he see me? I didn't see him. He must be the Son of God, like these people are saying. And just like that, he grasped it. Now, you take a normal carnal human being and try to drill into his head the truths of Christ, and unless God opens his mind, you won't get anywhere. He would, he'd just totally reject it. But if God opens the mind, it's incredible what can be accomplished. That's why we need to have a ready, and in one sense an open mind, not open to Satan, not open to evil, but open to the good of God. Is, is that all it took? All right, you're going to see more. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So he says, Not only have you recognized at this point then who I am, but you're going to see some greater things and you're going to be with me, obviously, until I go back to my Father in Heaven, and you're going to see me come and go, 
They saw him leaving, and they saw him coming back. And the angels of heaven there. So he says, if you think me seeing you under a fig tree is, in, is something that's remarkable, wait till you see the things that are coming. And Nathaniel will also be there when Christ comes in his glorious return here at the end of this age, and he will see him descending with the angels of heaven. And then when Christ goes back and marries his bride and brings her down, Nathaniel will be descending with Christ and the angels of heaven. These disciples, become apostles, are going to be there, uh, resurrected, brought back to life, and being, being given spirit being of lives, as 1 Corinthians 15 show us so clearly. So John, here in this opening, shows that Christ went all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the beginning of this present creation, and has been there all along, and then <coughs> was manifested as a human being to come and provide salvation and opportunity to all mankind. So this is quite a powerful introduction, really, of Christ's background, his history, <coughs> and lays the groundwork for what he would do in his ministry and what he is to do in the future. So it does help us then begin to focus on Christ, the Son of God, who through who became the Passover. <coughs> and that's why I wanted to go into this at this point to help us, weeks ahead of time, begin to focus on He who became the sacrifice for us and our Savior. <coughs> 